All right, so we're going to read the sermon passage, Acts 17, 16 to 34. All right, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Praise be to God for his word. Pray briefly. Our God and our Father, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. And what we have not, give us. For Christ's sake, in his name, amen. So I titled this sermon, What is the Gospel? I'm preaching from Acts 17, as just was read, verses 16 through 34. I understand that to be on page 100, or 1,101 in your pew Bible, so I invite you to follow along as by God's enabling I am able to bring his word 
So we live in a day and age where we can no longer assume that a biblical worldview is understood. We use words like postmodern or post-Christian to describe the erosion of Judeo-Christian values and ethical standards that once served as the foundation of Western civilization in general and of our country specifically. I'm a student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I was helped by one of my professors not that long ago in thinking through the differences and sharing the gospel in an Acts 2 world, the world that many of you who are of a previous generation grew up in, and an Acts 17 world, the world we live in today. Well, what do I mean by that? In Acts 2, you remember Peter, it's Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. There are Jewish proselytes from all over the world, and Peter begins to preach. But what Peter does is he anchors his message in some prophetic passages in the Old Testament, like Joel. He doesn't have to go back and unpack who God is because there's a commonality, there's a common understanding of who Christ is. And that's the world that was of yesterday. Today, it's Acts 17. That's not the world that we live in, that Acts 2 world. And so today we're going to see Paul, how he proclaims Christ in an Acts 17 world in Athens. So we're jumping midway into this passage. So some background, Paul's in the middle of his second missionary journey, and he's come to Athens because he was previously at Thessalonica and Berea. And the brothers sent him away because tensions started to escalate. And so he is in Athens awaiting the arrival of Timothy and Silas, his co-laborers. He's gone ahead of them for his own safety, but also as a rendezvous point for them. That's where we're jumping in in this passage in Acts 17. Notice with me there in verse 16, you see that Paul is provoked. We need to ask ourselves, what was it that provoked Paul? We, we might put it another way. What was it that got his dander up? Well, he was distressed by the rampant idolatry that he saw. The word, therefore, provoked means greatly disturbed. One commentator said that, quote, that Paul was incited to jealousy for the Lord because of the pervasiveness of idolatry. Instead of worshiping the Lord as the only true God, the Athenians were bowing down to lifeless idols. Close quote. See, Paul had seen the effects of idolatry in the city of Lystra back in Acts 14. If you remember, Paul and his associate Barnabas, they had healed a man who had been crippled from birth and hadn't walked. And the inhabitants of Lystra, upon seeing this, start to proclaim that they are the gods. Right? They say that Paul is Hermes because he's the one speaking, and they say that Barnabas is Zeus. Well, you know what happened from there. If you remember the account, Paul ends up being stoned. They drag him out of town, and he is stoned. And so Paul is very aware of the effects of idolatry. Now, what is idolatry exactly? We hear that word. That's a big theological word, a $25 word. What is idolatry? Well, in short, idolatry is anything that takes the place of the one true God. It's a substitute God, a substitute for the one true God. It's anything you can't live without. If It's anything that if you lost it, your world would come crumbling down. It's anything that you trust in, 
more than God. It's anything that you go to before you go to God. It's anything that causes you anxiety at the thought of not having it. It could be a person. It could be food. It could be a job. It could be an item. It could be a pastime. That great French reformer John Calvin wrote, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We are constantly producing idols, those that we are aware of, those that we are not aware of. I, I tell my children, it's, it's good for you to have toys. Just don't let your toys have you. So we see that idolatry is worshiping the wrong God, but idolatry is also worshiping the right God in the wrong way. Now, to be clear, that wasn't necessarily the problem of the Athenians in terms of knowing God, which they didn't, but worshiping an idol instead. You see, this second, the second type of idolatry, worshiping the right God in the wrong way, is generally found in an environment where people either know the one true God or are aware of him in some way, shape, or form, like sort of the, the remnant of God in our society today. This is what I call the, the make-believe God, the, the, the God of our imagination. Many of you are familiar with the golden calf incident from Exodus 32, where the Israelites became impatient because Moses had been up on the mountain too long with God. And so they said to Aaron, uh, Aaron, actually Moses' brother, who uh, Moses had appointed along with the other elders of Israel to shepherd the people in his absence. And so the people come to Aaron and ask him to make them a false god because they say, well, as for this man, Moses, who led us out, well, it wasn't Moses. Moses was God's instrument. It was really God. But in bad-mouthing Moses, they were bad-mouthing God. Make us a god to go before us. Well, what does Aaron do? Well, Aaron folds like a wet napkin, and he gives into their request to make them gods. And after he's made this golden calf an idol, he told the people that this calf was the gods who led you out of Egypt. Well, if you remember, we know how things went from there, and it did not go well. Right? The Lord was none too pleased, and that's putting it mildly. So the make-believe God is the God we hear about today. It's the God who doesn't send people to hell because that's unloving. It's the God who supposedly told someone that they could move in with their boyfriend or girlfriend. It's the God who is okay with you getting divorced because, after all, he wouldn't want you to be unhappy, would he? It's the God that wants you to live your best life now. That's the God we hear about today. But that's not the one true God. That's not the God of the Bible. It's our responsibility to tell people about the one true God, the one who is holy and therefore hates sin, the one who will punish sinners, but is also merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we need to tell them that the same God sent his son to pay the penalty for ruined sinners like you and like me. And he did that so that he wouldn't have to punish us, but instead could grant us eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul did in response to the idolatry. He, he shared the gospel. He proclaimed Christ. You see there in verse 17, it's Paul's 
usual response. One thing about Paul, Paul just can't help being Paul. He was no sightseer on vacation in Athens, taking in the art of the city. He was an apostle of the risen Christ, an ambassador sent to proclaim a message. So Paul enters a city, and if he finds a synagogue, he's going to go there and proclaim Christ. If you look, at, if you look up at verse 2 in chapter 17, we see that this is normal for Paul. After Paul and Barnabas had been appointed as missionaries by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 13, they go down to Cyprus and proclaim the word. He does this in Acts chapter 13, verse 5. At Iconium, in chapter 14, verse 1, he does this numerous times. In Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17, verse 1, after being run out of there for his own good, he, you guessed it, he enters a synagogue and proclaims Christ. You see that in verse 10. Now, if you've read the Gospels and Acts, you've noticed that synagogues come up quite a bit. However, if you've been a student of the Bible for some time, you will also know that synagogues are not mentioned at all in the Old Testament. Well, what gives? Well, likely synagogues came into existence during the Babylonian exile, where God kicked the nation of Israel out of the land for 70 years because of their idolatry. And so that's the time where synagogues came into existence. The Jews, or rather, synagogues were places where the Jews received instruction in the law of God. But also, the Jews weren't the only people who received this instruction in the law of Moses. You see there in verse 17, it tells us that Paul also reasoned with the devout persons as well. So these devout, these devout persons are those who are converts to Judaism. If you remember back in Acts chapter 10, the first convert after Pentecost, the Gentile, is Cornelius the centurion. Right? He it was said of him that he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So Cornelius would have been one of these devout persons. They were Gentiles who came to trust in the one true and living God. So we can therefore conclude from the existence of the devout persons in Athens that the Jews, to some extent, had at least fulfilled their God-given responsibility to be a light to the Gentiles, pointing them to Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there, though. He goes into the marketplace and he proclaims Christ. The words that's used there for marketplace describes a place where people hang out, where trials are held, and things are sold. So to give you a grasp of this concept, think of Maple Tree Place in Williston, you know, that shopping center there that has a majestic 10. So you've got a movie theater there, and then you've got shopping, but then you also have, what, the barracks for the state police. That would have been a marketplace in Paul's day. So in other words, Paul went into the highways and byways of Athenian society, like he does in the synagogues. So he does, so to speak, in the streets. He's telling people about Jesus. And more than that, he's reasoning with them. You see that word there in the text, just like he did with the Jews and the devout people. So his presentation of Christ, it's clear and it's rational. It's logical and it's well thought out. It makes sense. It's intelligent. 
God, speaking through Isaiah the prophet, says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. You see, Paul is answering their questions. He's speaking to their doubts. He's listening to their concerns. He's challenging their presuppositions. He's countering their assertions. He's arguing, but he's not being argumentative. In Timothy chapter 2, verses 2 through... Actually, Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may grant, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Christianity is not, is not a check your brains at the door religion. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible's claims that he is God come in the flesh, is not irrational. The resurrection is not irrational. Faith in and of itself, faith for faith's sake, is irrational because faith needs an object. Christianity is not irrational because the object of its faith is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity stands up to scrutiny. It bears up under investigation. The 19th century Christian and apologist and philosopher G.K. Chesterton said, the problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found wanting, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. Let me read that again. The problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found wanting. That's not the problem. But that it has been found difficult and left untried. So why do we not share the gospel? Do we not believe that we have the best news in the world? Do we not believe that we have the most important news in the world? Do we not believe that people need to be saved? Do we not believe that God is mighty to save? Do we not believe that once people cross the threshold of this life into eternity, Without Christ, they will spend a Christless eternity in hell. Do we not believe the words of Hebrews 9.27, where it says, And it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment? I think we're going to be surprised, actually, where some people end up. Right? People we thought were going to hell, see them in heaven. People that we thought we'd see in heaven. Not so much. But I can tell you this. I can tell you this. 
that for certain people are going to one place or the other. I can tell you that believing in Christ gets you to one place and not believing in Christ, thinking that this is all just smoke of smoke and mirrors and a bunch of nonsense, that gets you to the other place. That gets you to the other place. Well, let's move on. In verses 18 through 21, we see the crowd's response. I mean, Paul ends up in conversation with two groups of philosophers, one are called Epicureans and the other group, the Stoics. I found the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia to be helpful as I researched these two. The Epicureans were those whose supreme pursuit in life was pleasure. And they defined pleasure as the absence of pain in the body and trouble in the soul. The absence of pain. Wouldn't we like that? Doesn't that sound nice? Sounds nice to me. The Stoics, on the other hand, were spiritual, believing the entire world was God, and since every part was divine, everything was worthy of worship. Let's just worship, worship everything, everything and anything. As a result of this, evil was relative and could be endured with courage and cheerfulness. And although they rejected organized religion, they were highly ethical people. But both of these groups, both those who sought pleasure and those who endured life with a stiff upper lip, neither group had ever heard the gospel. Radically different than what either of them believed. Kistemaker writes in his commentary, quote, Paul's teaching was a novelty to them. They had not heard about Jesus and had no teaching on the resurrection. Hence, their comment that Paul seems to be a proclaimer of foreign deities. However, Paul preached the good news of Jesus and taught that he had risen from the dead. This was newsworthy and called for a formal address. End quote. Luke's summary comment to this section regarding Athenian society is quite sad, actually, if you think about it. They, they spend a lot of time talking, but not of anything of eternal value. Nothing worthwhile, at least eternally speaking. Proverbs 10.19 states, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Have you noticed the world around you, brothers and sisters? A world where people are saying a whole lot, but if you listen long enough, you will discover that they're not speaking of anything of eternal value. What better environment than this, then, than to bring the words of eternal life? We've got a world full of questions. How do we fix this, and what's wrong with that? Is there a better answer than the hope of the gospel? Can you think of one? Because if you can, you've not really understood the human condition. And you've not really understood the gospel. I remember a, an apologist of yesteryear saying, if you take someone who steals railroad ties and you educate them, they will steal the railroad. What was his point? Right? Education is not the problem. 
more education. We've got more education than we can than we can think of. Still murder, still mayhem, still pick your particular sin that you want to double down on. No better hope than the gospel. As an aside, it's an interesting note, I think worthy of note, sad, but both Stoic and Epicurean philosophies still exist today. They go by other words, other phrases, other terms in some places, but both of these are roughly 2,500 years old. Well then did the early 20th century English journalist Malcolm Muggard say when he said new news is old news happening to new people. New news is old news happening to new people. So what is the gospel? Well, we're going to get to that. Listen to Paul as he proclaims it. Paul shares the gospel that he's brought to the Areopagus in verses 23 through 33. See, the Areopagus was the earliest aristocratic council of ancient Athens. It was sure, it made sure to uphold the laws that the authorities had set in place. It even had power to summon people to court, people who had not been tried nor convicted, people who, who, insofar as we know, hadn't convicted any crimes, or if they had, it had the power within this court to examine, convict, and punish them. It also exercised the right of capital punishment. So Paul, for all intents and purposes, was going into the lion's den. And it was composed of magistrates who were civil officers. So it's in this context, in this environment, that Paul begins to make his defense. And we see, first of all, as Paul begins to share the gospel, that the gospel is a message about God. Paul starts at the most important place. He, he respectfully recognizes that the Athenians, too, are worshipers. See, God made us as worshipers. And if we don't worship the one true God... We'll worship every and any other God we can think of and make up. Now, still, I found this point to be instructive in that Paul demonstrates that oftentimes the best place to start is with points of agreement and not with points of disagreement. We, we Christians are quick to draw up the battle lines, and in so doing, we miss the opportunity to share the gospel, to share the love of God with those who disagree with us. Let's work to be those who are slow to speak and quick to listen. Nevertheless, having graciously acknowledged their beliefs, Paul begins to make a distinction between their false gods and the one true God. He tells them that God created the heavens and the earth, that he decided from eternity past who their parents were going to be, where they would be born, when they would be born where they would go to school, what jobs they would have, what zip code they would live in, the color of their first car. See, unlike Peter in Acts chapter 2, whose audience already knew who God was, Paul's audience didn't, so he started at the very beginning. And like that song in The Sound of Music, it's a very good place to start. The second I was encouraged when I spoke with Josh how you all use the New City Catechism. And you all know that the second question of the New City Catechism is, what is God? To which the answer is, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable. 
in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. The corresponding verse is Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10 and 15. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God is. God is the sovereign creator. He's in charge of everyone and everything in every place and every way and at every time. In other words, God created all things, owns all things, keeps all things into existence. All things are defined by him. All things are accountable to him. And all things are for him. I think it's Romans 11.33 that says, From him and to him and for him. The fact that we question that, don't believe that, don't like any of that, rebel against that, doesn't make it not true. It just makes us cosmic sinners guilty of cosmic treason. Now you might say, whoa, Femi, back up. Are you saying the fact that I have questions, that's sinful? Well, no, not necessarily. But have you ever noticed that in Genesis, let's take this back to the beginning, thinking, Speaking of a good place to start, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have no record of a question. It's conceivable that Adam had a question. No questions. Don't answer out loud, but when is the first question in the Bible? Answer, Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say that? What's the next question? Adam, where are you? the third question. Have you eaten of the fruit that I told you not to? Isn't it interesting that questions only arise after the fall? Questions like, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? So questions aren't inherently sinful, but it's interesting that they are, uh, they arise from the fall. Something worth thinking about. We see in verses 29 through 31 that next we see first, we saw first that the gospel is a message about God. Next in those verses we see that the gospel is a message about man. The gospel is a message about man. See, beginning in Genesis 3 when Adam rebelled, effectively declaring his self-rule, that's what the word autonomy means, self-rule, And making himself God, man has been making gods after his own image. So man not only needs to be saved from his sins, he needs to be saved from himself. You ever heard that? Said that to someone? Had it said to you? Heard it in a movie? You need to be saved from yourself. We need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be saved from ourselves. From our self-love. We talk about low self-esteem. That's not the problem. However we want to couch it, that's not the problem. We, we love ourselves too much to have low self-esteem. You see there in verse 31 that the gospel is a message about Christ. The gospel is a message about Christ. Now this seems like a no-brainer to us, but notice where Paul puts the emphasis. 
This is very interesting. Number one, on the judgment to come. And number two, on the resurrection as a confirmation, not of the father's acceptance of his son's sacrifice, which it is, right? The resurrection proves that God accepted his son's sacrifice. And two, because he lives, we too will live if he trusts, if we trust in him. But that's not the emphasis. Paul says that the resurrection is evidence that God will judge the world, that the Lord Jesus will return and judge the living and the dead. That's what Easter is really all about. Not to the exclusion of those other things. But the resurrection is proof. Not only that Jesus is who he said he is. Not only that the Father accepts him, but he will return. And every single one of us in here will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what the resurrection proves. Only the sacrificial death of the sinless, selfless Christ can save us from our sins and from the wrath of God to come. Only that. My hope is built on nothing less but, let me hear it, Jesus' blood and righteousness. So now what? So now what? It's got a message about God. It's a message about man. It's a message about Christ. We are done, are we not? No, we are not. We see there finally that the gospel requires a response. You see that there in verses 30, 32 through 34. What is the proper response to the gospel? This message about God and man and Christ, what is the response? Well, it's repentance. It's repenting of your sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus. Repentance means that you're a sinner, that you agree with God that you're a sinner. That you've lived for yourself instead of living for him. Trusting in Christ means that you surrender control of your entire life to him. When I was in the Marine Corps, we used to say, this ain't Burger King, you can't have it your way. (laughs) Same thing with God. It's not Burger King, you can't have it your way. God is creator, we are created. God is sovereign, we are not. Well, what was the response of Paul's audience? Well, some believed. And their actions confirmed it as an aside, right? It says they followed Paul. It cost them, right? Mark 8, Jesus and at uh, Caesarea Philippi, when he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. And Peter rebukes him. And Jesus says, get in line. And then he turns to the disciples and says, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself And pick up his cross and follow me. And when you picked up your cross in the ancient world, you weren't going to Target. You weren't going to Walmart. There was only one place someone picked up their cross was going. And it wasn't to the beach. So they followed, and it cost. And of those who followed, including at least one of the Athenian elites, Dionysius, and we hear about a woman named Damaris, and it says some others, so at least two, so maybe four, maybe more, but at least four out of however many were in that gathering of august and important people. Others thought Paul was foolish for his beliefs, while others were undecided. Sounds a lot like our day, doesn't it? So let me bring this to a conclusion. For those who are here who 
are followers of Christ, we must recognize it is of utmost importance. It is imperative that we recognize that we no longer live in an Acts 2 world. If you think I'm exaggerating, last fall we had a gentleman walk into our church. I would say he's about my age, maybe give or take, I'll have to ask him, and I'm within striking distance of 50. And he walked in our door in God's kindness, and he knew absolutely nothing. He said to me, and another one of our others, that he knew absolutely nothing about God, nothing about church, nothing about the Bible. How is that possible? Somewhere, somehow. We no longer live in an Acts 2 world. Today's world is the world of Acts 17. Last fall, we already told you about that person. Let me tell you a little bit more about him. God is graciously working in the life of this man. He came in, and he has been coming every Sunday ever since. He's been bringing his cousin to 10 men's Bible study. Been sitting under the teaching of the word. We didn't evangelize him. As far as we know, nobody did. Just showed up. God is doing a great work in his life as he sits under the teaching of the word Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. He's learning about God and who he is and what he's done for sinners through the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus. If On the other hand, if you are an unbeliever, if you've never heard the gospel before, well, you've heard it today, I pray. And I plead with you, please, 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 repent and trust in Christ. It is the singularly most important decision you will ever make. If you've heard the gospel before, but have not bowed knee to Christ, if you were here because someone invited you, you know someone here, I want you to do me a favor. And I'm not really asking you, I'm sort of telling you, this is an imperative. I want you to talk to a Christian you know about what is keeping you from turning, from running your own life and surrendering to Christ. Again, it will be, it is It is a matter of eternal importance. We are not here trafficking in in making widgets. We are trafficking in eternal things. That's what's at stake. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, insofar as I have been clear, I pray that you by your Spirit would help your people to continue to run the race, to be encouraged, to be built up, to be edified, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And for those who may be among us who've not, who've not bowed knee to Christ, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, help them to grasp the truth of it, the true truth of it, that they would see the beauty of the Lord Jesus, that they would repent and trust in him and be saved, and they would bear fruits in keeping with repentance, starting with being joined to this fellowship of believers for Christ's sake and by the power of your spirit. Yes, you see, we ask these things, please. Amen.